Well, it is good to be back worshiping uh, actually here and, and virtually there. My response when it comes to virtual worship is that it's virtually impossible. Uh, it's interesting that uh, when, when the pandemic started, the government was quick to say that you couldn't get married virtually. <laughs> you, uh, you had to be in person. And there's something about worship that's the same. It's just not the same when we're not together and we miss it. Uh, I miss it. And so a bit of a taste is, is good for us. I'm very privileged to speak to you uh, words of explanation about Luke chapter 13, the first nine verses. I'll explain its context a little later. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. The word of the Lord. Well, this parable of the fig tree emphasizes how God is a God of mercy. A God of a second chance and even of a third and a fourth chance. And we might add a fifth or a sixth. I mean, after all, how often did Jesus say we should forgive people? In the end, 70 times 7 times. We have a God who's incredibly gracious and patient. However, grace is not cheap. It's, even though there's lots of it, it's not handed out the way the government is handing out money during COVID, where you get it whether you ask for it or not. Grace comes with confession. Before this parable on grace, there's a call to repent. 
So Jesus started his ministry with a call to repent, as did John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. Paul, when he was in Athens, did the very same thing. When he's explaining to people that there is this God, and he said there's been a day appointed when, when God will come, but he says, for now what God is asking is that all people repent. Just before our passage, uh, Jesus had, uh, there had been really, it says, many thousands of people, and he'd been talking with his disciples uh, about the end times, and they had some questions about it. And uh, Jesus even said in, uh, in Luke chapter 12 that he said, I have some hard things that I've come to bring fire on the earth. And then he asked this question, do you think I've come to bring peace? And we say, of course. And he'd say, no. Come to bring division. Division in families. And then Jesus notes, because this is a hard thing, that there are those in the crowd who are having a hard time accepting who he is. And he looks at them and he said, you know, you're the kind of people who can look at the sky and you can see it's cloudy and that those clouds have rain in them. But you can't discern the time that you're in. They didn't discern that Jesus was among them and that he had come, God in the flesh, to make people right with God. So Jesus spoke very plainly to those who were there. He said, listen, if you're on your way to court and you know you're guilty, wouldn't you want to settle out of court? Because <laughs> once the judge issues the judgment, you're, he said, you're going to have to pay the last penny. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, there's a judgment coming. We're ultimately all on our way to court. Wouldn't you want to settle with God before it's too late? Now, I don't know about you. I don't like going to court. <laughs> I've had a few tickets <laughs> in life, and I wanted to challenge them. Uh, they were, yeah, you know, that's how I, I thought. But the thought of going to court and standing before a judge was so unpleasant, I just paid them. I suspect when Christ talks this way about ending up in court one day, that people are getting a little nervous in the crowd. And you know what happens when people start talking against us? We want to either shift the blame or change the conversation. Hey, uh, what about those Galileans? <laughs> That's kind of how this comes. There are people, all of a sudden, what about those Galileans? Because it had happened that there were some Galileans who they didn't get along with Jews very well. They had risked some travel to Jerusalem. They were going to offer sacrifices because there were people of faith over there. And they end up being killed and in a very cruel, insulting way. Pilate mixed their blood with that of animal sacrifices as if they were animals. 
So there must have been a reason, right? Oh. I'm, I'm used to getting uh, some static from our kids, but not from these sound systems. <laughs> Hopefully it doesn't stick around. That's, that's how the Jew thought. See, there's a logic. People call this karma. We're in an ordered universe. If there's a higher being in control, then nothing happens by chance. Jews generally viewed disaster as punishment for sin. It was why the disciples asked Jesus, this man, why was he born blind? Was it him or his parents? It was the reason of Job's uh, friend Eliphaz. They came to Job and they said, Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? That's the thinking behind the question about the Galileans. And Jesus counters it. First of all, with a question. He often asked a question to get people thinking. Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the others? Because they suffered the way they did? I tell you no, says Jesus. But unless you too repent, you will perish. And then Jesus gets closer to home. Never mind Galileans. How about Jews? What, what happened to these people in Siloam when the tower fell on them? Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Jesus here firmly puts to rest this tit-for-tat thinking that if something goes wrong in life, it's because our first wrong has been done. It's simply not true that if someone's caught in a disaster, someone has disobeyed God and that they've got it coming. Do you think all those people, thinking back a, a few years ago in New York when the Twin Towers came down, or when that train derailed and exploded in Lac Megantic, Quebec, or when the coronavirus came to the Langley Lodge and over 20 people there died, are they worse sinners than others? A friend once called me. He was dying of brain cancer and I knew him well, and he said, do you think it's because of what I've done? Well, I knew how, how repentant he'd been about it, and he said, uh, I said, if, if that's what's happening to you, uh, none of us should be alive. Now, this doesn't mean we can never conclude that just because something's gone wrong, another wrong hasn't been done. We do live in a moral universe. There are situations where it is fair to conclude that a certain behavior has brought about a certain loss. Bad driving causes accidents. Poor lifestyle leads to sickness. That's not what Jesus is addressing here. 
He's addressing the sad reality that good drivers get hit by distracted ones. And that innocent pedestrians get killed by somebody as they're walking along the road. And healthy people can die from a virus. Things go wrong. We say crap happens. And it isn't because somebody's a worse sinner. In that sense, life is not fair. So why did that tower fall on those 18 people in Jerusalem and not on the others? We don't know why. Maybe it was a poor architect. But we just know this. They were not worse sinners. In a broken world, this warrants reflection. A world infested with sin, things can and they will go wrong. It's, it's built into the logic of life that sin leads to brokenness, death. And Adam and Eve's disobedience brought about a brokenness emotionally, relationally, physically. Death has come. Our culture has no answer for sin, and they prefer to call it something else. Most humanists today believe that we are on an upward track as human beings, that we're getting better. We're no longer like those people back there, you know, first century folks or 16th century folks. We keep learning and we've got science and technology on our side and we're, we're getting ahead in life. That needs to be contrasted to how God's word views human beings. About the only good word it says in the Bible about us humans is that we're created in God's image. After that, the story of the scripture is about humans are continually failing. And when they do good, it gives attribute to God. The Bible helps us understand that we all share in a very sinful condition. Life is disrupted. Things sometimes just don't compute. And it doesn't make sense why some things happen. And because of sin, random acts of unkindness will continue to happen. That's almost the norm. And when it's random acts of kindness, that's when we say, wow, and ought to praise God. Because it's for no apparent reason that brokenness, sickness, and death will come upon us. So when a pandemic goes across the globe, even though we have nothing to do with or know nothing as to, to why or, or how would God hear. I mean, we can, <laughs> we can blame China or we can say, well, that person gave me the virus. 
But it, it doesn't change the fact that innocent people are suffering and dying. This week I was saddened. Uh, some of you know I work for a ministry called Resource Leadership International. We support the training of, of pastors and receive news from two seminaries in India and one in the north where four of their faculty in recent weeks have died. And in the south, in Madras, uh, it's more than four that not have died. There's, there's, at present, several in the hospital, a few of them on respirators, and others struggling for their life. Why them? Are they more backward or something? May this coronavirus remind us that none of us None of us warrant the gift of life. All of us are fragile humans, ultimately destined to die. And unless we repent, we too will perish. It's not an easy message to receive and sometimes it, not to give. Revelation 9, in my devotions the other day I read this, of how a third of mankind was killed. A third of mankind killed by three plagues. And what does it say the response of the people was? The rest of those who were not killed, still, quoting the Bible, did not repent of the work of their hands, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. The good news of God always comes in the context of bad news. And what we need to accept is that there's a lot of bad news. And here's the really bad news. There's a virus much more deadly than corona. Apparently about 98% of those who get corona survive. But of this virus, no one survives. It's the virus of sin. And you have it, and I have it. God has a cure for it. But you have to admit you have the virus. Or you won't be interested in God's vaccine. Are you right with God? Have you, have you repented? and been made right or justified with God? You know, today we hear a lot about justice. Justice begins in the soul, not on the street. It works its way out to the street. The first injustice that needs to be dealt with is our injustice towards God. How we've treated him. And we need to repent of that and get justified. That's the first step in what we might call the great reset. Which our political leaders will and perhaps could not speak about. This is something your doctor very likely will not 
diagnose and which more and more preachers hesitate to speak directly about because we too, we like to be positive. We like people going away from church feeling good. But Jesus came first to make us holy, not happy. Now in the process of making us holy by the blood of Christ, he gives us the joy that comes deep within. But we begin with holiness, not with happiness. And in our age of entitlement and government handouts where we talk more about rights and all the things we deserve, it's hard to admit we don't deserve anything. Life is a gift. We deserve to die. And if someone goes sooner rather than later, is that because they're a worse sinner? No. May Corona remind us that there but by the grace of God go I. could be me. And all I need to ask is, am I ready to meet my maker? Or do I need to settle out of court yet? Come clean with God. May every close call we experience be an opportunity to give thanks and go deeper with Christ. Repentance. It's an ongoing thing. It's one of our disciplines. Jesus said we're to take up our cross every day again. Die to ourself. The catechism, when it talks about genuine repentance, asks what's involved in it, and it says there's two things. There's the dying away of the old self and the coming to life of the new. In other words, it describes repentance as a process of dying, where it says we are genuinely sorry for our sin hate it more and more, and run away from it. And what do we run to? It says, a wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a delight to do every kind of good as God wants us to. I hesitated to talk about repentance, but really it is good news. It's an incredibly freeing thing when we own up to who we are before God. It's liberating to let go of whatever it is, this sin that we have. Because when we do that, we start to travel light as we sojourn with Christ along this gravel road one way to heaven. And the incentive to repent, you might be wondering, when are we going to get to the parable? Is from the grace of God. When you realize how kind he is. That's why Jesus told this parable after the call to repent. There's this fellow, he owns an orchard. And in it, there's a fig tree that hasn't grown, produced for three years. So he says to his pruner, let's cut her down. Why should he use up the soil? a good businessman. His arborist says, whoa, leave it alone. Arborists love trees. 
Give it one more year. I'll dig around it. I'll fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, come on. Extend the tree some grace. Then we can cut it up. Apparently it took three years for a fig tree to mature enough to grow fruit. So I guess this tree would have been about six years old and still no figs. And so the gardener simply wants to, you know, see more potential. He, he looks like a healthy tree. <laughs> and so he wants to give it another chance. And that's all, then the story ends there. And with this, Jesus is saying, Israel, you and me, as long as you haven't been struck by lightning, so to speak, there's still a chance. There's still an opportunity. One day the axe will be used, but for now, let grace be shown. You know, it's interesting. The next day, Jesus curses a green fig tree that had no fruit. He's with his disciples. They're amazed. They say, Jesus, huh, how did you do that? And I think they're saying, why did you do that? And he says, you know, if you have faith and you don't doubt you can say not just to a fig tree, but to this mountain, move, and it'll move into the sea. And then he said, if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Well, Jesus there talked about a mountain. He wasn't talking about actual dirt. I believe what he's more talking about is the removal of our sin and our shame. These feelings of inadequacy that can just hold us down. And Jesus is saying, you know, if we will just admit we're powerless over this sin disease and trust him to deal with it, we will receive what we ask for in prayer. And this sin in our life, it sometimes is a mountain. God's mercy has not run out. He gives us every day again, as long as we're alive, another chance, a fourth, a fifth, a fiftieth in order to turn and receive his grace. It's sufficient. And that's why we'd like to go right into the Lord's Supper. This reminder, as Liz, through that wonderful story, just told us of how great our God is. That's why Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. As we suggested earlier, it's something like a vaccine. This is a way in which we get inoculated with a shot of God's grace. It's 100% effective in saving us from eternal death. And it lessens the effects of sin. So if you, uh, at home, you may want to go with your elements. You here, you may want to uh, prepare your elements and... I'll be explaining them in a little while. 
some of you, if you're watching uh, online and you've never uh, celebrated or participated in communion in this way, you know, this is something that we've often wanted to be very careful about in terms of who participates. But if you're hearing of who Jesus is and his incredible offer of grace in your life and you go and you just grab a piece of bread and you get a drink, it, we use grape juice, it doesn't have to be that, it can be wine, it can be a glass of water if you like, anything to symbolize who Jesus is. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And that's why Jesus, on the night, in, uh, what he, when he was uh, with his disciples, the, the night before, uh, he died. He was with them. They were having this supper together. And uh, during supper, at one point, he took the bread and he broke it. And then he looked at them and said, This is my body. Do this. And what he meant was, Eat this in remembrance of me. And then a little later, after he had given thanks, if you can imagine in that context, knowing what was happening, Jesus is giving thanks to God. And then he looks at his disciples and he asks them all to drink of it. And he says, and this is how I want you to drink it. He says, this is my blood. View this as my blood of a new covenant, which I'm pouring out for the forgiveness of sins. In a little while, we'll be eating and drinking together. As you do that, Think of these words of Jesus that he spoke earlier in his life when he said, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, who would ever say that? You know, you'd say you've got to be... <laughs> Whoever eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the blessing of your grace, the gift of your Son, Jesus. And thank you, Lord Jesus. You became just like one of us, only you lived a perfect life. And you died innocently on that cross for us so that we might share in your resurrection victory. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for the healing good news, for how it has brought about your worldwide 
church and planted in our hearts the hope of eternal life. Now, Father, as we eat this bread and drink this cup, will you deepen our connection with Christ and unify and sanctify us in your spirit. Help us to anticipate the day when your whole church will be gathered as one in your kingdom. Amen. Colossians 1 says, God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Therefore, now that you've taken, eat and remember and believe the body of Christ was given for the complete forgiveness of all of your and my sin. Also in Colossians, referring to the blood, it says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So now take and drink Believe the precious blood of Jesus was shed for the complete forgiveness of all of your and my sin. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, thank you for feeding our souls through our bodies with this crucified body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus. Thank you in this way for assuring us because we need it, your grace, and filling our hearts and Lord, indeed, do fill our hearts with deep gratitude for your ongoing mercy. Continue to expand our faith and establish our hope and strengthen our love and equip us to always live for you, Lord Jesus, who have given yourself for us, so that in all the troubles and the sorrows of this life, we may persevere knowing that we will be there when you return in glory. And it's your, in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. 
The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.